Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by none other than Aquarium Co-op. Head on over to AquariumCoop.com. Check out all the awesome things that we have for sale at AquariumCoop.com. The Aquarium Co-op coarse sponge filter that sinks instantly to the bottom. Nice coarse foam so you don't have to do the maintenance all the time. It is a wonderful product. Pair that up with some Aquarium Co-op airline tubing with a Zis Neverclog Airstone, and you are set to have air-driven, wonderful filtration in your aquarium. Not only do we have things like the Aquarium Co-op sponge filter, we have a wide selection of extreme foods with my personal favorite, the krill flake, that practically everything in my aquarium or in my fish tanks will eat. Couple that with extreme slow-sinking pellets or the uh, semi-floating or the fast-sinking pellets as well. Fantastic fish food that I actually has kind of turned into my staple uh, super super red, super nose, there you go, folks, super red bristle nose staple food. It's got spirulina in it. It's got krill. Just a fantastic food all around, and the colors that I get in my super reds are fantastic. And in addition to those kinds of products, we have a massive selection of live aquarium plants, valicinaria, water spray. Uh, dwarf chain sword what else are we bringing on red melon sword red flame sword um, always trying to keep things like uh, java moss on on steel mats in stock for you so if you want that for your shrimp tank we've got it floating christmas moss balls such a cool thing to add to your aquarium to get this like mid to lower level water column feature that if you've got shrimp in your tank, the shrimp are gonna love interacting with that thing. Seeing your fish swim around a floating Christmas moss ball, um, those we always like to keep in stock. Well, we like to keep all of our plants in stock, but those usually have no problem keeping those in stock, and they are just such a cool feature to add into your aquarium. Let's see, what else? Jungle Valcenaria, uh, Crypt, we recently brought on Crypt Wendedi Green. There's my favorite Crypt, Crypt Tropica, that is just this beautiful textured leaf Crypt. So, ton of different plans for you. Aquarium Co-op, for the most part, aside from selling you the actual aquarium itself and the fish, uh, one-stop shop, fish foods, uh, dechlorinators, all the accessories you need, aquarium lighting. Right now, we were able to secure some 3.0s, so time-relevant Fluval 3.0s, head on over to AquariumCoop.com. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. My guest today is Daniel Harnden. Daniel's a longtime hobbyist with over 50 years' experience keeping fish. Daniel's very active on the new Aquarium Co-op Forum, sharing his creative projects and helping fellow hobbyists with their questions. So, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Randy. Glad to be here. Awesome. Glad to have you on, Daniel. And, you know, in the in the pre-interview section, you and I, we were already kind of diving into topics and, you know, having a having a good conversation just before we even hit the record button. So I'm very, very excited to bring you on and um, looking forward to kind of diving into, you know, all the all the goodness that uh, that you have to share with us. Well, um, I, I hope it's interesting. <laughs> I think it. I think it will be. I mean, we could start off with the fact that not only are you a fish keeper, but you're also a beekeeper, which, as you said, is the savior of the planet, right? That's right. <laughs> that, what one third of the grocery store would be gone if it weren't for honeybees. Yeah, I, I, I joke, uh, Daniel. The comment you had made was that people think that beekeepers are the saviors, but you just, uh, you know, you, your sentiment is that you know beekeeping is just like any other hobby, and um, yeah. Well, and. You know, you wonder, how did the planet get along before bees were brought to North America? Somehow the crops got pollinated. Um, so the, the bees are wonderful, but, you know, there is a limit. They're just 
so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've done zero research, and we're already going to get off on a beekeeping tangent, which is totally fine. But um, it, that that's something that I think doesn't necessarily get brought up, right? Again, I've done zero research on this topic, but the bees that we have were not native to North America. You know, they were, they were right. brought here, and then we talk about the decline in the bee populations, but it's a decline in a non-native species. Exactly. So uh, North America probably has four or 500 kinds of native bees that did and still do a lot of the pollination. Honeybees came into Jamestown in 1620 and then actually spread faster than the colonists. So among the Native Americans, uh, honeybees were called white man's fly oh, because wow. they would they would see those before they even saw the colonists. So you're right. They are non-native. That's funny. So then uh, bees like the mason bee, right? That That's a bee, right? That's one of, yeah, is that one of our bee. natives? Yep, that's one of the native okay. bees. So all the bumblebees and the sweat bees and the mason bees, uh, those are all our native bees. And it's, you know, and, and I'll, you know, admit my ignorance here. I think it was, it wasn't until I moved up here and I went to one of the more boutique kind of nursery stores where I saw these, um, you know, these, these, what look like a birdhouse with a bunch of tubes in it. And I'm like, what is this thing? And it's a Mason bee hive. Right. And I'm like, I've never, I've never seen this before. And at this point I'm like in my early thirties and I'm just now learning about Mason bees. And apparently you can buy like, you know, the Mason bees in like a refrigerator or like the larva or, or something like that. But you know, this idea that it's always been the honeybee, but no, there's, you know, all these native bees that actually do their pollinate pollination as well. Um, and then kind of like, how does that fit in with the narrative of, you know, the honeybees being decimated um, and, you know, therefore our crops are going to go away? Well, and, you know, you can't believe everything you re read in the newspaper, but in the mid-2000s, there were reports that there were honeybee colony collapse uh, and that our bees were dying off. And it just so happens that the professor who's the lead uh, in that study is Dr. David Tarpey at NC State, and he's looked at it, and it turns out there really isn't such a thing as colony collapse disorder. Uh, bees die in the wintertime for a lot of reasons. You know, the colonies will die, and there is a mite, uh, the varroa mite, that is giving bees a hard time right now, but there's always something. When you, no matter how far back you go in history, it's either wax moths or it's American fowl brood, but it's really nothing new. Usually maybe 30% of honeybee colonies just die off every winter, but bees like tropical fish make more in the spring. And uh, so there is no real overall decline in honeybee colonies. And just like tropical fish, the most dangerous thing to honeybees and to tropical fish are beekeepers and tropical fish keepers. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so uh, thoughts on the murder horner, hornet then, because that that's uh, something that we're seeing here in Washington State um, and the, the you know, local wildlife uh, agencies are doing all sorts of creative things to, to kind of track them down. What are your thoughts on the murder hornet? Well, you never want a new invasive species, and especially something like that that can be predatory. But I think the reason we hear so much about it is, first of all, just the name Murder Hornet. <laughs> I mean, that's a great name. It that's going to get you a, a headline right there. It's a beastly. And, it's a beastly bug too. That right, and huge. the picture of, of of its face. 
Uh, I mean, that just looks awesome. But we already had uh, European Hornets and other things like that that are very similar. And I've watched them, you know, pick off a few honeybees in my hives. But a beehive might have 60,000 honeybees, and the hornets eat a couple of dozen. Um, but, you know, I, I, I heard these murder hornets were really bad, but you, like I say, you can't believe everything you read in the newspaper. Uh, it's, it, it may not turn out to be what the story says it is. Uh, apparently, one of their tactics was to actually fit captured murder hornets with some type of a transponder release them right so kind of that judas con like the judas snake concept where release it back to the wild and it's going to go or the judas goat which one whichever the judas one is um but it'll go back to its hive and then with the transponder you can ping it and find where wherever their hive is but apparently they had made it and it was too heavy for the murder hornet to actually fly back (laughs) so they didn't they didn't think that design through i guess well and and there, people have fit little transponders to honeybees, uh, and I actually uh, started work on a project where we were putting little QR, QR codes on the back of honeybees, and then we could track their movements as they came and went. But it is really hard to track something that flies out for three to five miles away uh, and then comes back. So uh, we would just end up tracking when they left and when they came back. A QR code, like how, that has got to be infinitesimally small. Like how many actual data values were contained within that QR code? So that QR code is just an ID for the honeybee. Mm -hmm. So you can know which bee. Because a honeybee is, it's like the Borg. It's not the individual, it's the colony. Mm -hmm. And each one does different jobs. And you may want to know who's a nurse bee and which particular larva is she feeding. And if every single bee in the colony has an individual QR code on its back, you can videotape that and then that can be digested and the data can be analyzed and you can produce maps of where every single bee went at every single moment and you can begin to figure out things like, oh, this nurse bee only fed larva that she was related to and not the ones that came from other fathers. Uh, so huh. you can it, so you can use QR codes to track individual honeybees. Is there do beekeepers have a term for themselves like with uh, with you know a tropical fish keeper you would say that you're an aquarist. Is there a, a similar term for a beekeeper? Beekeeper. Oh, just beekeeper, you keep it nice and simple. Uh, <laughs> some people uh, uh, a beak. I've heard the term oh. beak. But that's just, you know, a, a shortening. <laughs> I like it. All right, so my, my last question, I think, around the beekeeper, um, you know, assuming we've even got any fish keepers still listening to this podcast, but uh, is the social media uh, YouTube presence for beekeepers, is it on par with, like, what you see with fish keepers kind of posting content and whatnot? It might be, but I have never done a lot of social media. Mm. I know my local bee club has uh, an active Facebook site and I think I've only been there once, so I'm not a good person to speak to that. Yeah, it's it's always funny because you know I, I am very much immersed in kind of the the fish YouTube social media world, just given the nature of my job and doing a podcast. Uh, but you know, anytime you go down a DIY rabbit hole or anytime like you you scrape the surface of another interest or hobby, you just see this entire microcosm 
of you know b tube like b youtubers or um i got into tabletop wargaming which is going to be on um i just did an interview with uh robert our general manager he and i talked about that for about two minutes and you know there's just a whole world around those guys and it's just crazy how all these interests there's you know massive communities of people that all have that same interest and are just so heavily vested into it that they actually put out content and others consume that content in mass so yeah, good stuff. I just wasn't sure if you were aware of it, but I'd imagine we could go down that rabbit hole right now and probably find, you know, the the aquarium co-op comparable beekeeper channel or, or whatnot. So, <laughs> all right. Well, there, there's not going to be many people who are as uh, honest as Corey. There's a lot of uh, channels out there, but usually they are selling some product. And it's not like Corey doesn't have something to sell, but he usually tells it. He tells it like it is. I mean, sometimes, sometimes Corey is too honest. Hey, no, buy all our stuff, man. That's uh, that's that's how we keep the lights on. That's how I that's how I stay employed. Buy our stuff. <laughs> all right, Daniel. So let's let's talk tropical fish, man. Where? All right. So you've sent me you've sent me a bio, and there's so much cool stuff going on. But um, you know, starting in 1969, let's just go back in the Wayback Machine. We'll see how far we can get in the the remainder of this podcast. If I have to have you on, you know, another two, three, or ten times to to kind of go through this, I'm I'm happy to do it. So, uh, you know, what what are your first memories in the hobby? How does it start for you? Well, I always like things in water. We had a creek in our backyard in our house in Atlanta, and. Me and the other kids, we would just wade down the creek and we would turn over rocks and find crawdads and salamanders and we'd put them in a quart jar and bring them in the house. But we, you know, the end of the day or the next day, we'd let them go again. But then I got a book from the library and it was a Henry Huggins book by Beverly Cleary. And in the second chapter of the book, Henry goes down to the drugstore and he ends up coming home with a jar of guppies. And of course the guppies breed and he ends up with jars of guppies all over his bedroom. And his dad tells him, you know, if this continues, Henry, you're gonna have a million guppies. And so Henry ends up taking the guppies back to the store. And I love this, he ends up getting store credit instead of cash for the guppies. But he uses, uh, he uses that money to get an aquarium and then switches over to catfish. But what I took from that story was I could go to the store. I could get a pair of guppies and I could be that boy with jars of guppies all over my bedroom. <laughs> and it turned out that that was completely true. And I remember that first big fat squared off pregnant female guppy and when I looked at her closely, I could see the little eyes of the baby guppies uh, inside her. And then when those, that, those guppies were born, not all of them were gray. There were some gold ones in there. And it was like, how can a gray guppy make golden babies? And so I had to get a, you know, a book on guppies and you, you know, found out that there were different types and that there was this thing called genetics. Um, but I was hooked. Mm -hmm. what, what is your opinion of the books that were available in 1969? And I know Enos is, you know, his, his encyclopedia kind of Bible book, which I, I, I do have uh, two copies of, one of which is a first edition that I had to go out and get. Um, but what, what is your 
opinion on the literature available, the information contained within versus what, you know, if you went down to your Barnes and Nobles or did a, a, a Tropical Fish book search on Amazon right now, um, what you could find that's been more recently published in this decade? So it was pretty good. Most of what I read was from TFH, Herbert Axelrod's mm -hmm. publishing house. And um, it was uh, good information. It was well vetted. It was at the right level. You know, it, it, it didn't necessarily get too deep. And uh, for me at first, uh, that's how I learned anything. Or, you know, the, the people at the fish store but um, I loved getting a book that I could take home and read. But uh, I think the quality of those books was very good. And then, of course, uh, also the magazines, you know, the Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine. Um, yeah, I thought, those, I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean, it's I – don't, I don't know where – this notion, and I've kind of espoused it before, but this idea that there was no information on how to properly keep fish and, you know, nitrogen cycle and all that stuff. And it's not necessarily true because the, the books back then, some of the older books I have, like they talked about it, right? It's just, right. it's just the information wasn't somehow being passed. And, you know, maybe it was the, the, the mall pet store that carried everything under the sun, you know, all the critters plus fish. You know, maybe the sales staff there didn't have the information to properly tell you, or maybe they didn't want you to know because then you'd kill fish and you'd come back and buy more. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. Like, the information was out there, certainly. It's just not – it wasn't necessarily being passed to the, like, larger public. And this is kind of like a generalization, like a – you know, just based on my own experience and my conversations with people on this podcast that, you know, everybody would do the 100% water change once a year, bleach the gravel, put it all back together – put the fish in there and hope everything survived or that's just what you thought you needed to do and you know we we had this idea of nitrifying bacteria and like we knew these things back in the day well so i don't remember when i learned about the nitrogen cycle and the bacteria uh, that had to come you know 10 years later but and we'll get to this I was the guy working at that department store, pet store. Well, you know, by the time I'm 16, uh, I get my first job there. And um, my boss, who taught me a lot, knew what she was talking about. And her boss knew what he was talking about. And by the time uh, I talked to customers, you know, I'd been keeping fish for several years. And we gave them good advice. But my memory was you know, dechlorinate the water. I don't remember chloramines back in the 1970s and let it age for a day. And, um, and, we, and we even had live plants back then. I mean, I don't think I ever remember, at least personally, having an aquarium where I at least didn't have some anacris in it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's not like plastic plants were popular and colored gravel was popular. Um, but it's still the same formula for keeping your fish alive as now. Mm -hmm. and, we knew what it, and we knew what it was, and we told the customers. You know what, then? I bet is my dad was just stubborn. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, you know, like, because I could totally picture this. Like, I'm, you know, little Randy is just so over the moon of being in a pet store, picking out fish, looking at all the different tanks. Um, you know, somebody's bagging stuff up. Again, I, I, I've said before, like, having vivid memories of a specimen container. And like yep. thinking the specimen container was like the coolest thing in the store next to the yep. fish themselves. 
And then the guy probably maybe even telling my dad, like, okay, this is what you need to do. And then my dad being like, okay, okay, cool. But then at the same point, like, if we are buying, like, an African cichlid plus a molly plus a common pleco, he's probably like, all right, these people don't know what they're doing. They're not going to listen to me. All right, here you go. Here's your fish. Go home. Well, you know, we cared, and you try, and it, some people listen, and, and some people don't. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they will, if you beg them hard enough, I, one of the uh, uh, first, I went into a place, I, I don't know, I must have been 13, went into a local fish store called Barnacle Bills, and the Severums were breeding. And once the babies were free swimming, I just begged Bill until he gave me some of the Severum fry to take home. And he said, look, you've got to feed them. And, and, and Daniel, if you don't do it right, they're not going to make it. But it's like, no, I have to have these. And of course I killed them. Um, but Bill knew what to do. I just didn't listen to him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I could, uh, I've got a little bit of that streak in me myself, but you know, when it, but the not listening, um, after I got over my guppy phase, I got a 10-gallon aquarium and set it up. I think I had bright blue gravel, had a, a Pinplex box filter in the corner, and neon Tetris were so cool with that bright blue. I just They were so pretty. And I, I think I got three or four neon Tetris and put them in there. And... Uh, like the next week, me and my dad and my brother were out at a golf course because my dad liked to fish golf balls out of golf course uh, ponds. And my brother and I caught a couple of baby brim. And we brought those back home. And I was getting ready to put those in the 10-gallon aquarium with the neons. And my dad said, oh, boy, don't, he said, don't do it. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, don't you know, neon tetras are the fastest fish in the world. And he said, hmm. And so I put them in there and, of course, got up the next morning and the only thing in that tank was brim. I, I, had, to, and, I, I had to Google it. And a brim, for those that don't know, that's a, that's a sunfish. So that's going to tell, it, you. <laughs> it's gonna tell yeah, you all it, you need to know. <laughs> yeah, it's a sunfish. It's a big carnivorous fish. Uh, and uh, I just burst into tears. But... Uh, but who listens? You know, I knew more than my dad. Mm. Um, but that's how you learn. Yep, yep. And, and then back then, like a neon tetra was not price point wise as inexpensive as they are now, right? Uh, at that point, so I don't go as far back as uh, Rosario Lacourt, where a neon tetra is like half a week's working man's <laughs> wages. No, yeah. So by, yeah, by 1969, neon tetras were, I don't know, I think they were 10 cents a piece. Um, so and that would, I, I, de I definitely think I remember, at least on sale, them being 10 for a dollar. Okay, and so the I think right now, what are they, like $1.99, maybe two forty nine a piece for a neon tetra? Yeah, so that's probably comparable. Okay, okay. All right. It's pocket, yeah, you know, just pocket change. I'm not I'm not trying to date you, Daniel. I'm just like <laughs> I just <laughs> I just assume everything before I was born was relatively much more affordable than things are now. Is is just my general perspective on things. <laughs> well, the the pet stores were definitely cooler than they are now. So, um yeah, when how, you how would so? go how so? Well, when you would go into a, a department store and so the ones that I bought those 
guppies from, um, you know, you pass from like the entertainment section where they had TVs and there would be these freestanding aquatic displays that had baby turtles or baby alligators. And then you get deeper back into the store and there's puppies and cats and reptiles and uh, fresh and saltwater fish. And imagine seeing that in a Target or a Walmart these days. I mean, they just don't have that anymore. Mm. Was this like a, a Montgomery Wards kind of setup or even like, was, was it so Sears, the, Sears Roebuck back then? It was, it was like that. Uh, that store at that time was called Grant City. Uh, and it was just, it was like, a, I mean, this was before there were Walmarts or uh, it was like a Walmart. And then eventually that store was taken over by Richway and... So that's when I, I started working at that store when I was 16 in 1976. Uh, and we sold tegu lizards and African parrots. And I remember looking at the price list of what we could order from the wholesaler. We could have, we could have ordered baby chimps. Oh, my if God. If you can imagine. I know. I know. I mean, just the horror, right? I mean, that, that, that was available on the price list. But um, – Richway, all the Richways uh, were eventually bought out by Target. Um, so these were like proto-Targets is the best way to describe them. Gotcha. I can't, I can't even imagine seeing Baby Chimp on a, on a buy list. Like, yeah. Who even, who even delivers that? Does that come on like your, your you know, 40-foot container for the week of <laughs> like resupply stuff? Or, jeez. Uh, yeah. I, I I don't know how would I don't know how that would have been delivered. You gotta let, you gotta let receiving know that a baby chimp is coming um, for the yep. uh, for the store. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, I do want to know. So those guppies in 1969, what what did they look like? Like I'm I'm assuming they're not like ultra super Vienna guppy, you know, kind of the the things that we have now. What what would you describe them as? So the guppies that I had in the jars, I would say. We'd call them wild types or endlers, mm -hmm. but there were fancy guppies. Um, but a fancy guppy in the mid seventies looks like a normal guppy that when I say normal, a fantail with a lot of color, mm -hmm. um, that, that, that would have been a show guppy you know, back in the seventies. Like they, they hadn't gotten into Dumbo ears and all the different leer tails and all those other, you know, kinds of guppy tail pattern. So, uh, leer tail is a wild type, uh, that would show up all the time mm -hmm. in the wild type guppies I had. That's not a new invention. I think, uh, I think guppies in the wild, uh, have that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, and, so and, and guppy shows, if you read, uh, the Ennis material, uh, guppies were big in the 30s, mm -hmm. and, and, and the shows were very competitive. And it was kind of like, you know, the equivalent of a, a Breeders' Award program. I mean, people were cutthroat. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure the picture that Joe Ferdenzi showed me when I was at his house of like a 1930s <clears throat> New York Fish Club meeting where everybody is dressed in their Sunday best, I'm pretty sure that that was a guppy bull show. And that, oh, yeah. you know, whatever exhibition hall, wherever they were, it was packed full of people. And all yep. the guys were in suits and all the gals were in dresses. And it just looked like 
everybody was, you know, ready for to have, you know, a Sunday service or like a really good weekend dinner or something like that at a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So then, all right, so then as we follow along in your uh, in your timeline, so the 1970s, you got your first 10-gallon aquarium, your Neon Tetras. Um, anything else about that 10-gallon tank? No. Um, the tanks, had, I, to have, the I, tanks I, had to have been more expensive, though, right? Comparable to now? Uh, comparable to now, and here's why. The I was always amazed how cheaply the store would sell me a tank, and then I figured it out that they would sell me the aquarium below cost because if I bought the aquarium, then I would buy all the supplies and the fish. So even in the 1970s, and I, in, the, in the middle 70s was right when the all-glass aquariums started coming in. So just like the Aquians we know now, that's what you would have seen on the shelves in 1975. If it was 1965, it would have been uh, the Metaframe tanks. Mm-hmm the stainless steel um, with like a slate, fir- with a slate bottom, right? Um, not towards the end. So the older meta frames did have slate bottoms, but um, there was a phase where the meta frames had glass bottoms, you know, at the end. And then by the time I buy my first aquarium, it's just like the aquariums we have now. Okay. And, and in a ten gallon aquarium, I don't know what it was, but it was very inexpensive. Um, okay, so that that could be on par then with like the Petco dollar a gallon sale, right? Where I I know that a dollar a gallon on a ten gallon is below cost. Like they're definitely yes. and I've and I've talked with reps before, and you know they've had some interesting words to say about the dollar a gallon sale and why they do it. Um, yeah, so. Because it's funny, because I, I feel like I, I would love to see the Petco sales numbers of how many glass tanks they actually sell. Now, COVID aside, driving so many people into the hobby because they're staying at home, you know, before COVID, what the sales numbers look like outside of a dollar a gallon sale versus when they're running a dollar a gallon sale, I, I think it would just be, it, it's got to be astronomically different. And and then I wonder how much they're actually teasing out for single order purchases. And what I mean by that is. You know, the us, us with multiple tank syndrome that go and buy 20, 20-gallon 20 highs all at once. If they're breaking right. it out to actually see, oh, that's one nut job loading up his minivan with 20-gallon aquariums as opposed to them thinking, oh, look at all of the people we just got into fish keeping because we sold all of these tanks, right? They're not individual transactions. Right. They're all like two transactions of fish nerds that and, – and if anything – it could be like the one guy, because how many stories have you seen online of somebody saying, well, I hit up my local, uh, you know, Centralville Petco, and then I drove over to the Shelbyville Petco, and then I drove over to the, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the Raleigh, you know, Petco, and I wiped all three of them out of 20 longs, you know, and it's, right. it's one person now at this point at three stores. Well, I always, I always feel like, you know, in the end, they know what they're doing. And, you know, we... <laughs> Do they, Daniel? We, Do they? Well, well, I've seen some pretty silly things of manufacturers and, and vendors in the tropical fish hobby. I can tell you that much. Well, that's true. But I, I remember <laughs> thinking I got a good deal on a new car one time. And I was talking to the salesman when we were signing the papers and I was kind of crowing. And he kind of winked at me and says, yeah, but we always win. So, <laughs> um, you- yeah, they may they may lose on individual items, but um, they mostly know what they're doing. <laughs> Uh, I'll, 
I'll, uh, I'll agree to disagree with you on that one. Um, all right, so 1971, we got white clouds breeding in a trash can outside with hornwort, or comma hornwort. Tell me about that. So I, I didn't, my neighbor friend across the street, he got the 29-gallon aquarium, and I really just didn't have the money to get another aquarium, but I could get one of those little blue kitty wading pools. Um, and actually, I think it was a trash can initially where it was just one of those like Rubbermaid, you know, 20-gallon trash cans, uh, just like now, and uh, filled it up with rainwater, threw some hornwort in it, and put some white clouds in there. And I wasn't thinking that the white clouds would breed, uh, but went out one day and there were these little slivers of like glass at the top swimming around. And I was confused for a moment, and then my eyes got big, and I realized, oh, my God, the white clouds have bred. Oh, my God, I'm an expert aquarist. <laughs> I, have, I have bred egg layers now, not just guppies. There you go. Uh, and so I was hooked, and uh, that, that did lead to uh, a kiddie pool uh, a couple of feet away and starting, started adding more and more kinds of fish to it. Uh, I wanted a fish, you know, once I was an egg layer, uh, master breeder, I thought, well, I can try something like cichlids. So I got convict cichlids. And again, I thought I was a genius because they, <laughs> I like they it. bred, they bred <laughs> right away. Um, but I started putting that sort of stuff in the ponds outdoors. Uh, and, uh, I would, ponds were great. Anything you put in there would breed, and uh, it was a great place. Uh, this is how cool the fish stores were back then. I could get archer fish at this department store, uh, tropical fish store, and so I brought archer fish home and put them in the pond outdoors, uh, and you could see them shoot at mosquitoes and stuff that would land, you know, on the grass that was grow, you know, overhanging the pond. Uh, it was really amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I would never have, and again, this is just my ignorance on the on the kind of history of our hobby, or at least, you know, what was available back then. Like, I wouldn't have thought that archer fish were overly common back then, and these would have been the, the, the fully freshwater archer fish? Yeah, mm. and if you look at the literature, there were people, I think, going back, who knows how far this goes back, but I know at least by the 20s or 30s, there were like carnival acts where the uh, they would have a lighted cigarette and the archer fish was trained to put the cigarette out. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, if they were doing that in the 20s and 30s, and now, you know, we're talking about the mid-70s. Sure. You know, that's like four decades later. So you could, you could get um, just about anything. And there were some things that were more common, like, Every pet store had kissing gouramis mm -hmm. because who wouldn't want a kissing gourami? But, of course, you take that home and it turns into this huge, aggressive fish that you've got to bring back to the fish store at some point. Um, but most of the stuff, I mean, there wasn't as many uh, dwarf cichlids, you know, as are available. 
But the same basic stuff we keep now was available back then. I, I need to source some TFH magazines that basically hit like one every five years and just kind of take my time and go through them and, and just build this better sense of what was available, what people were working with, you know, what kind of the, the thoughts and sentiments and research that people were doing. Um, because it's just, you know, it's just kind of grasping at straws with these assumptions. Like, and, and like with Joe Ferdenzi having his full catalog, maybe you also like him have this extensive library of past articles and past issues of all these different fish publications from back in the day. You know, that's one of the things, that's why he keeps them. You know, periodically he'll just pull one off the shelf and take a look at it. It's kind of a reminder or to discover something new about what we were doing in the past in the hobby for that better perspective. Yeah. Um, the, and so then again, like kind of to, to help, um, you know, move the fog of my ignorance, like the white clouds, those also were, were pretty common. And then when you bought them, did you know anything as far as like their hardiness or temperature, you know, temperature preferences or any, mm -hmm. anything of that nature? Yeah, because okay. I had, um, there was a TF, TFH book, Exotic Tropical Fish. And I don't think I had the Ennis book. Um, you know, Herbert Axelrod stole all the photos from the Ennis book to put in his book. And Ennis won the lawsuit, but they only awarded him a dollar in damages. Oh, uh, Her Herbert Axelrod was quite the character. But, you know, you could go to the uh, two pages on... White clouds, and it would say, you know, tan Ichthys albinubs. These come, you know, origin White Cloud Mountain in China, uh, very hardy in cold waters, uh, easy to breed, and they would just it would give you the rundown of what you needed to know about that fish, uh, and that was a, you know, a, a five dollar, three hundred fifty page book that covered every species of tropical fish you are likely to find. Mm. Yeah, that's just me needing to remind myself that um, you can actually look things up in books, and there's information there. It's not just all on the Internet. <laughs> yeah. and then, but uh, I, what I don't remember there being a lot of information about, though, was plants and how to grow mm. them. And I remember the first time I saw a nice planted tank. I was in ninth grade. I would have been about 14. And... My biology teacher, Mrs. Lemon, had one on her front desk, and I was probably like a 40 or 50 gallon. It was a metal frame tank, and it was heavily planted. Must have been Vallisneria. You know, I didn't know my plants back then, but she had live bears and corridors catfish and uh, neon tetras in there. And I sat on the front row, and I would just stare at that fish tank, and I wanted to live in that fish tank. Uh, but that really set this image in my mind of what a fish tank could look like. It could be a forest of plants with schooling fish in there uh, and just a beautiful little piece of nature. And I think that's what I have spent the last 50 years chasing is Miss Lemon's fish tank from the ninth grade. Wow. Well, one, I'm impressed that her desk was that large to have a 40 or 50 gallon tank on it. <laughs> and then it was still. So, so this, yeah, this was a science class. Okay. So not only did she have a big desk, but it was like a lab bench, mm -hmm. you know, with the black soapstone top. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, fish tank was on the lab bench portion. But uh, so this is not like a, 
office desk desk. You know, she was almost up on a little platform. Um, yeah. So that's super cool. Yeah. Okay. And, and me and Miss Lemon uh, came to a bad ending. I, I want to, I would love to track her down through Facebook and say, look, it worked out. But uh, I would get bored in class and I would read. I was reading a Michener book, uh, Hawaii, and she caught me doing it. And she said, Daniel, you have to write 500 times. I will not read other books in class. And I was a little troll even back then. And I got, I think it was half of a three, five, three by five card. And I sharpened up my pencil and I did this micro writing and I wrote 500 times on this little tiny piece of paper. <laughs> I will not read other books in class. And when I turned that in, her face just turned beet red. She took me by the collar and she hauled me up to the principal's office. And she said, look what he did. And the principal looked at it and said, he wrote the sentences, but she wasn't done. So when we got back to class, she didn't let me go back to my seat. She sent me to the uh, glassware storage area behind the classroom. And for the rest of the semester, I had a washout glassware. And she didn't, <laughs> let, she didn't let me back in the classroom. And I thought, well, fine, um, she, but she'll pass me. No, she gave me an F. Um, but I've always wanted to track her down and say, Miss Lemon, I became a biology person because of you. Um, sorry, sorry about me reading the other books. That's funny. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, you, you know, clearly like you've got inspiration from her and, you know, certainly like you recall that tank. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good thing you didn't go to Hogwarts or anything where, you know, no. with it, with the, the magic that those teachers had and, you know, ends up like engraving in the back of your hand or something. Uh, no, and she taught, she taught us real biology. We dissected a sheep eyeball. We dissected a frog. Um, we were required to keep like actual scientific notebooks. Uh, and everything I learned in that class has stuck with me until today. No, oh, that's awesome. Um, the, the art, let's go to the, the Archerfish uh, pond again. So you've got this, and, and here's like a little plug to the forum, but you've got uh, a post that you started, show your earliest fish keeping photos. And uh, your mom, you had said that she dropped off some photos. You asked her, do you have any photos of, of you uh, keeping aquariums? And you've got, uh, was it like four, four or five? Actually, no, you got a good number of pictures in here, maybe like six or seven pictures. Um, and one of them is from 1975, and it's the Archerfish Convict Cichlid Blue Pond Kiddie Pool. Do you recall yep. what plants you had in there and like how you set and like how that thing was set up? So at first, it was just wild collected, uh, you know from a ditch. And so it would have been like cattails and alligator weed. But then later on, I was buying plants, you know, from the store and it would have been hornwort and anacris, which we called Elodea. Um, but it would have been floating plants. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't have anything that I remember rooting back in that time. Mm -hmm. Do you remember ever having any like pest issues with that uh, with that pond or any of your ponds in general, like raccoons, possums, or anything that would come and prey on the uh, the fish? No, um, I mean they could have, but they there there were never any fish missing. So no, I don't remember anything. Mm. How long did you keep like this kiddie pool up and running? Uh, that was maybe three or four years. I moved it to a sunnier 
location in the yard at some point. But then, you know, you get to be 15, 16 years old, uh, girls, other hobbies, working. And uh, the tropical fish began to fade for me during that time period. And it was the first of many kind of absences from the hobby. And then, you know, five years later, you come back and you hit it harder than you did before. And you go crazy. And then there's another absence. And then you hit it again. And I think the reason I'm so fish crazy at this point is I've been doing this cycle over and over again. And each one is worse than the one before. (laughs) And I've just had more years to do it. Nice. Nice. Um, I, I am curious, do you, you would overwinter these ponds where you lived? No. Okay. So these, these were just summertime. Okay. So this was, at, this was Atlanta, Georgia. And so it's too cold for most. I think I even, I had paradise fish out there, but it was too cold for paradise fish in the winter in Atlanta. It's my memory. And did you bring them into like uh, aquariums in the house or would you just take them into the store for credit or trade for something else? I don't remember. Okay. Um, no, so no. much. It's just so much. has just gone down the memory hole. No, no, I know. We're, I mean, we're, we're in the early seventies, you know, early mid seventies right now. And I'm having you try to like pull out these memories. I can, if you asked me what I was doing two years ago, I'd be like, ah, <laughs> yeah. I'd have, I'd have a hard time. So no, I completely understand. Um, and so, yeah, where, where do you want to take it from there then? As we're, you know, talking about the, uh, the ponds, uh, any, any memorable stories that, you know, we don't want to pass up on? Uh, no, it was the, uh, it just in that time period for me, where I really learned about fish was working at a pet store. When you have to answer those questions about ick or what is this fungus or what can I put together or what's the right size filter, uh, that's how you learn is you do it every day. And so that was really a good grounding for me was that uh, 1975, 76, 77 time uh, working in the pet store. Mm. But I, 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 I don't think I have too many more stories from that time. Yeah, and that's, and that's just where I'll say, again, my ignorance, like, oh, man, people, you were actually, like, helping people with ick back then and, you know, all these, all these other diseases and whatnot. Randy, I'm telling you, if, <laughs> if like, you but could, there's no YouTube you, though. How did they know? There's no forums. If you could time travel, it's just like now. People are the same. You know, the world was in color. Uh, <laughs> and I don't mean to paint the, it that way. I don't mean to paint yeah, it that way. The, the the fish haven't changed, so it, yeah, it was the same. Why were why were me and so many other people then so? ill-informed about what we were doing in the hobby then. It's just, like, I feel like it's so easy now to get that information probably because of the internet. So I guess at this point, it's just asking people at the store? Is that what it comes down to? But but I would say this, about people were equally ill-informed back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, people could easily kill a lot of fish, and maybe you gave up, or maybe you kept with it. But I think I remember at the time a statistic like one in 10 homes in America back in the 70s had an aquarium. I think, so, that, I think that statistic still holds true. Yeah. 
So, and it's not always the same home, you know, you know, next year, maybe somebody's given up and somebody started doing it. So I I guess what I'm saying is it's not any better or worse. I mean, all the people who kill their fish now or have problems are the same people who were killing their fish and having problems back then. Mm -hmm. Well, I I would, I guess I would say, I would hope that it, it, is better or could be better because it's so easy to just type into like a search engine, you know, what you want to get into fish keeping and then at your fingertips in the comfort of your own home, maybe, you know, you're just laying on your couch and you look this stuff up versus before you'd actually have to go into a store and talk to somebody or actually check out a book or purchase a book at a store. Yes. So hopefully in that Uh, sense, you know, maybe, maybe things get, get better. Yeah. So maybe it was a little more valuable because you had to, try a little harder to get the information, mm-hmm. but you didn't have to try that hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, I, I mean, what do you do now? You go down to a pet smart, <laughs> you ask them what I should buy, what I should put in it, what I should do. I mean, that, that all seems pretty similar. Do, okay. So let's say then the, the, your, the pet store that you worked at was, um, for, uh, Richway, oh, in the first store in the Richway store. Yeah. I, mean, I can't remember of the name we were like a subcontractor to Ridgeway, and I do not remember the name of the actual company I worked for. Okay, and that's where your boss and your boss's boss were were well informed in how to keep yes. fish properly. Okay, that's and, right. Which would be in the quote unquote big box store, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you had like an isolated incident where like you just worked with people that cared and knew what they were doing, or. I don't uh. know. That that's possible, but the other you could just go down Buford Highway in Atlanta, a couple of miles to Pine Tree Plaza, and that's where Barnacle Bill had his mom and pop fish store. And you know, I wish I could time travel and go back and talk to Bill now, but he knew what we, he was doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he, he had a breeding pair of Severums, you know, in one of his tanks, and and he he certainly had more rarer fish than you would get in the department store, pet store. Uh, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was that unusual. Could Barnacle Bill get baby chimps though? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he, he didn't have the connection. <laughs> oh man. It's just the mail order catalog, right? Like, of course, you know, you just get it from, uh, get it from awards in the, uh, in the it mail was, order catalog. It was, it was, a, I remember it was a, it was a blue, uh, typewritten sheet, you know, price list. And I just remember holding that, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we sold tarantulas and that was one of the ways I would uh, entertain myself is if, you know, there were people coming in who I thought would be freaked out by tarantulas. I would get one out of the, you know, you'd pick it up by the back legs. Oh, you're that guy. You're that guy. I'm that guy. Yeah. I would let the tarantula walk down my arm. And uh, they were just, ah! but that, of course, that was the reaction I wanted. Um, <laughs> There's something about people that are just so into bugs. It's just, oh man, good times. Yeah. Bugs and snakes, ah, not, uh, not, not exactly my cup of tea. Um, so one of the, oh, I, I would, I would do anything to get attention. So when <laughs> we went on this Okie Finoki, yes, segue, beautiful. Yeah, I actually so, wanted to bring that up. 
So you're thinking, oh, and Daniel's going to tell me he caught Okefenokee pygmy sunfish. No, I didn't know what those were at that time. Even though they were in the books at that time, it to me, it was a native fish. And it's like, how could something that I could just go get out of a ditch, how could that be as cool as something I could get at a store? But I did want to see uh, and catch mosquito fish because they were like guppies. But when we got down there and... I think I was 17. My idea of getting the girls to pay attention to me was to swallow live mosquito fish, you know, like that oh, guy in college, you know, who eats, the, you know, eats goldfish. And for some reason that didn't work with the girls, uh, you know, and I was mystified. I thought, well, why, why, why don't they want to hang out with me? That's gotta, uh, that's gotta be like a Southeastern United States kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome, Daniel. Well, and maybe that is a 1970s thing. Maybe we, we have gotten back in time. But uh, uh, no, it was gr- I think it was pretty gross back then. That's why I did it. That's awesome. I mean, so so given that like the past four episodes or whatever it's been, there, there's kind of been this Okefenokee kick, which as people know from the episode with Robert and I, those fish have not come in yet. And apparently they're going to be collected or they've, they've got them. They're just waiting on some other fish in Robert's order before they send it to us. Um, but Bob and I do not have those fish yet. So our breeding competition is on hold pending fish arrival. Uh, but anything, anything cool about Okefenokee Swamp that you can tell me about as somebody that's actually been there and, and done collecting? Uh, it's huge. It's big. What I remember was uh, it's kind of like got canal highways and it does have active, loud alligators in there so you didn't want to get out of the canoe and get in the water whereas now most of the places in in north carolina it's a little too cold so when i go out and i collect pygmy sunfish now i will get out of the boat and walk around but in the okefenokee you don't want to get out of the canoe. What, what do you mean? Well, first off, the fact that you're even getting in a canoe to go on the water where there's alligators uh, it scares me. But what, what do you mean by loud alligators? What are they doing that uh, makes them loud? The, the females make some sort of big thumping, roaring sound. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and you're getting in a canoe going out there? Yeah, but you're safe. I mean, the big lizard's <laughs> in the water. You're in the canoe. Uh <laughs> But, you know, what do they say? They're more afraid of you than you are of them. Um, but, you know, that's fine if I'm in the canoe, but I, I don't want to get waist deep in the water where I can't see what's going on down there. That is something else. There's a, uh, I don't know if you remember from, if you heard the episode with Ryan Kinney and I, where he uh, he talks about the, the, the younger guy that goes out there and he does all the micro line fishing. Um, yeah. So he's in all of these like Florida swamps and backwaters and he's showing all the fungulus species that he that he catches. And I would love to have that guy on to talk about, um, you know, just kind of his experience with these native fish and their habitat and all that cool stuff. Like, you know, sure, it's it's an angling, you know, thing that he does, which, you know, some people may or may not be interested in that listen to this. But the fact that he can share, you know, his stories of actually going out there and collect, well, collecting, you know, lo- hook and line, if you will. Um, but that seems, that seems like it'd be a pretty, a pretty cool topic. And I, am enjoying that guy's posts because it all, you know, it is all these different fungulus and he does share his perspective on, you know, the, the prevalence of one fungulus over another, um, in certain bodies of water and kind of some other, you know, uh, biological ecology kind of fun tidbits in these various posts. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I, I linked his uh, Instagram profile and I would encourage people to, if you have any interest in native fish at all to, um, to follow him. Well, and, and native fish is um, 
a thing that over time I did learn how interesting they are. And you never really, unless you travel to Peru or Brazil, you don't really get where your fish come from and what their water is like. And, and it's really interesting. And, you know, I collect banana plants and other plants from the wild. Uh, when you can bring the fish home to your house in a five-gallon bucket in the water you caught that fish in and with the plants that were surrounding that fish, it's a, a whole different experience. And the fish are pretty. But I was going to ask you about that thing with Bob because uh, there's some things you don't know about the pygmy sunfish. Like I, I remember you reading from the aquaculture site. It's like, we'll take flake food. These things are never, ever going to take flake food. My, um, yeah, my, my assumption was I was just going to keep them on baby brine shrimp, just yeah, hardcore. That'll work. Um, I think I had plenty of success where don't, it was... don't, No, don't share any stories because Bob might listen to this, and then he's going to get those <laughs> nuggets too. we got to keep it down the download, Daniel. Well, but the more, <laughs> but the more variety, if you can give them blackworms and mosquito larvae, they'll be even happier. But the other thing you were saying was like, why isn't every pet store in America going to have these things? I'll tell you why. Uh, as beautiful as they are, my wife has a nickname for these fish, and she calls them the fish you never see. Yeah, they're a hider, uh, yeah. They're, they're a hider. And the, you can, if you get the furniture, when I was, when, if you get the plants in the tank arranged right, the males will be out all the time, and they do this little waggle undulation where the fins flick in a staccato way and they're blue and black and it's just like oh my god you can't believe what you're seeing they'll be out there all the time but if you don't get it just right they'll be the fish that you never see so here's here's a thought though then like i can completely i can completely see where you're coming from yet plecos are you know, fairly popular and drive a pretty high bargain. And how many of these fancy plecos just hide? Right. <laughs> you know, it's oh, you've yeah. got a bunch of you got a bunch of aquariums with nothing in it. Cool. Oh no, no, no. There's a zebra uh. pleco in there. Don't you don't you worry about that. There's a leopard <laughs> frog in there. There's a there's a, a candy cane pleco in there. You know, I mean the bristle nose. Those guys are great because they're always out and about doing their thing. But some of these like, you know, really exotic L number plecos that drive a sixty to sixty dollar and up price tag. Like those things are hiders, man. And but yet we like them. Yep. And and the other thing that I thought that you should know, which is the these pygmy sunfish, they're not technically killifish in a way that they're just seasonal like annual plants are but uh functionally out in the wild it is a, a almost a completely new crop of them every year so they really are just kind of a one-year thing if you keep them in an aquarium you could get two years out of them but you're that's almost kind of artificial they're really annual fish mm. Interesting. So, so you're saying, like, in your own personal collection, like, two years is kind of the max that you've been able to have them. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And yeah. they do, and and they do great in ponds. The first time I ever caught some, back in the late '80s or '90s, I brought them home, threw them in a kiddie pool, and uh, they overwintered, and there were more of them than I had put in. Nice. Um, so it it is a great little tub fish. 
Yeah, when you look at the different ones, like I know that we, you know, in in particular, we're trying to get the Okefenokee variety, but a lot of them, they, they these pygmy sunfish, they look very, very similar. And so, oh yeah, you know, short of doing like a full like body fin ray count analysis, you know, I I'm hoping that they send me what we ordered, but on their website, this you know, this company has four or five different ones that they offer, um, and they all kind of look the same. Well, they do all kind of look the same, but I can tell you that website that you ordered them from, I've ordered uh, other products, and I I wanted some Gilberti uh, Alasima, and that site had them, and you get what you order. Those nice. people, Good. those people know what they're doing. Um, that's a place I want to go to. I looked them up on Google Earth one time, and it's not that big. You know, you look at the website and think, oh, this must be a big fish farm. And it's just a couple of ponds and, uh, you know, like a garage. So that has got to be a really interesting place to go. Do you know, do they let people come in on appointment only? Uh, it, if you go to the website, it looks like a place that you can show up in person. Oh. I, think, I think you need to call them first. But uh, I bet that guy's got a lot of stories. And I know he's been around forever because I was buying stuff from him uh, 20 years ago. And at one point when I was going to try and grow rotifers or algae or something, uh, he was the place I could get all the flask and the filters mm -hmm. and everything from. So he, he sells a lot of interesting stuff. But the pygmy sunfish, the Gilberti, the Bulkeye, the Okadi, the Okefenokee, you can't even totally tell them apart just by ray counts. I mean, you really have to do the genetic analysis. Oh, wow. And and they are important in the uh, ecology world because by studying the genetics of pygmy sunfish, scientists have been able to work out the history of the southeastern river systems. And the southeastern United States is one of the great hotspots of fish biodiversity in the world. You know, it's not the Amazon, but it's the next tier down. And it's because as there have been successive ice ages, which when you have an ice age, the water goes into the ice and the ocean levels go down. And so things like Chesapeake Bay becomes a river valley instead of a bay. Mm -hmm. And all the, all the uh, outer banks in North Carolina are all separate river systems, which allows new species a fish to develop because they're separated. So now you start getting different species of pygmy sunfish. But then multiply this all the way down the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, over to Texas, and now we have all these new species of fish. But every ice age comes to an end, the ice melts, the oceans rise, and now these river systems start getting submerged and the species start hybridizing with each other, which actually then leads to even more species because you have the hybrids. Um, and on the forum, I posted a paper that's got the genetics of the pygmy sunfish. So if you go to the forum and you go to the file section, uh, the paper's a little dense, but at the end of it, in the appendix, they kind of show a history of all the different river systems in the southeastern United States and through the genetics of the pygmy sunfish, 
they unfold what merged with what over time. And it's just fascinating. That is awesome. So I'm going to show you how great I am at the forum. I didn't even know we had a file uploading section. Where, <laughs> Where's that at? So just to pin, you know, so you're at forum.coop.com. Yep. Okay. Just to pin the word files okay. and then hit enter and hit enter. Uh, forum.aquariumcoop.com slash file? It could be file. I don't know if it's file or files. I got a, I got a Murphy telling me I'm on the wrong page. There we go, files. Okay. And so the first thing, first thing I uploaded was the 1936 Ennis book. Yes, there uh, it is. Yeah, most downloaded. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah. complete copy. Uh, and then there were other people who uploaded uh, some really cool vintage items. But somewhere in there, biography you know, I, is it called biography of dot 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 bio? Yeah, oh, bio. There it is, biogeography. Bio yeah, yeah, and um, it is dense. This is not light reading, but there are pretty pictures at the end. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and that whole thing is about pygmy sunfish. Well, I'm pretty sure Matt Wagner, who I had on from the Mississippi uh, Wildlife Fish and Game, I think he had mentioned in our talk that you know the the fish diversity in that area is just huge. Yeah, it's through the roof. I mean, it is world class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I want to. I need to sync up with Nanfa. I've really wanted somebody from Nanfa to come on, and you know, I still do to to talk about their conventions whenever they're going to have them again, and then just to talk about you know the natives in general and the work that that group does. But you know, really kind of driving this um, you know wave of enthusiasm for for native fish, and that's where just discovering this genus of fish, like wow, these little guys are awesome looking, and you know. Uh, fair point that if you don't set the tank up right, they may just hide all day long. But, you know, that being said, there's still an amazing little guy that, you know, I would love to have, love to be able to have a success breeding, would love to breed him before Bob and just constantly yes. rub that yeah. in all the time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is it, between the fungulus, I mean, the elisoma, like what other, you know, the shiners, like what are uh, darters and shiners, like what other yep. genuses of, of our of our fish that, you know, we as Aquarius in the United States are not aware of, but I would guarantee you there's probably some Germans out there or probably some people oh, in yeah. Asia that are all about our natives. And some of it is definitely like grass is greener on the other side. Like you want what, you know, isn't local to your area kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but no, this is, this is great. Yeah. When I first decided I wanted to do pygmy sunfish, I could only find them for sale in Germany. And it was like, what? Oh, that's awesome. This, yeah. Is, yeah. this is crazy. <laughs> and so that's I started reading scientific papers and figuring out where these things really were. And then it turned out you could just go take a, uh, a big fish net and go to these areas and you could catch these fish and a bunch of other interesting native fish. But, yeah, the Germans love these things. And most Americans have never heard of them. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, so yeah, I was using the links, and the, the links were just for the picture, but yeah, I see that to the right there's a download this file. And that was a big one. I, I didn't know if the file section Ooh, would hold that. 51 yeah. megabytes. Yeah, that that's a chunky one. 195 oh, yeah. pages. I love it. Who's yeah, uh... it's, it's, I, I think it's a uh, uh, person's, it's his PhD thesis, and which is why it's so dense, but that, the person who wrote that paper has gone on to have a storied career as a professor. That's awesome. So uh, by Michael Sandel in 2012, yep. uh, graduate yep. school, University of Alabama. Yep. Roll, and, and roll now, Todd, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. Yeah, I definitely will. Um, I would like to think that I will read all of this, but I definitely will go through oh. this. Oh, you want yeah. because it'll be it's the statistical analysis of polymerase chain reaction. Yeah, oh, your wow. eyes will glaze. So yeah, okay, your, let, let me let your, me your eyes will glaze over. But like I say, at the very end, there's a summary. It's kind of like the short version. That's the history yeah. of the river systems in the southeast. Let me amend my statement. I will read the abstract, and then <laughs> I will read that concluding uh, section that you're talking about. Yeah, and then I will uh, I'll do a little podcast investigation and I'll research this uh, this guy this professor and then I'll do my uh, my bugging thing and say hey want to come on want to come on to the yeah. the podcast and talk to a guy that knows very little next to nothing but we'll uh, try to engage you in an hour long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to we got to get you breeding those uh, the Okefenokee pygmy sunfish. I mean, you've got to be Bob on this. Oh, it'll so. it'll happen. It'll happen. Okay. Bob, Bob doesn't know what's going on. Come on. I mean, he, he's had him before, but come on, really? I got you. I got you on this one, Bob. I'm going to I'm going to give him all the uh, all the good stuff, although I don't have too much of an issue with the uh, mosquito larva. Obviously, it's going to need to warm up before I get those guys. Baby brine shrimp. I mean, I, I, I hatch out baby brine every single day. And yep. then also on this order, I do have some Daphnia coming in. And right now yep. I've got one tank that is just, you know, completely green watered over, which is totally cool. So hopefully yep. um, I can keep that tank in a green water state and then have that good food for Daphnia um, in another tank and kind of a Daphnia only tank and see how that works out. But well, I, you're you're a better man than me if you can grow Daphnia in an indoor aquarium. Well, that's the I mean, thing. I, I, I've struggled with it outside. I've struggled with it inside. And we're just going to – this will be probably my, my third time trying to do Daphnia. So we'll see what happens. Well, I, I had my first good year, but it was because my uh, neighbor went out of town for the summer and told me to feed his koi. And I put Daphnia in there. And it turned into something where every afternoon I could go harvest three or four teaspoons of Daphnia out of that pool. That's awesome. So what you, what you need is a, a, a neighbor with, you know, a 7,000-gallon koi pond. Nice. Well, I did, you know, I did pretty well with just having one of my Rubbermaid 150-gallon um, kind of feeding trough tote things. You know, I, I had that thing full of water, and that was going to be my Daphnia tank. I tried to get it going with, um, like, spirulina powder and just to try to get green yeah. water going in that thing. But that didn't take, but I ended up getting uh, mosquito larvae in there. And I think that's the same tank that I also, you know, one day just scooping out mosquito larvae, I actually had um, I had bloodworms in there. I had chronominates. Oh, yeah. And yep, I, yep. I, I was completely not expecting that at all. Yep. Well, and if we ever have a chance to talk again, uh, what I eventually evolve into later is I live food is its own hobby. And ever since the 80s, I spent a lot of time uh, finding and collecting live foods. And it, it, uh, it's almost as fun as keeping the fish. Uh, and it, they're they're just so interesting. Nice. Yeah. No. I think definitely um, we'll we'll definitely have you on for a round two. And if you want to focus on a good portion of that being live foods, I'm all about that because again, I'm I'm mildly selfish with this podcast, and I like learning as much as I like you know being able to share the podcast with people. Um, so you know, definitely learning what you have to say about live food and your experiences. I, I would like to say I, I want to leave the conversation with understanding a little bit more of what. And this is, you know, partly uh, a little promo here for the forum. But 
how did you come across the forum and you know what what leads you to be so active on it because i think what are you you're like what, are the, what what's your title on here you're like oh. ultra poster or something like that you've got uh what is what is the little fun thing that next to your it's, name it's elite poster elite poster there you go but when Corey first posted the levels back in august it was a bad screen clipping, and I thought I was going to become an elite puffer. <laughs> and would, I was like, that, oh, yeah. That kind of works, though, right? Like, that would work right, for a forum. Right, exactly. I was going to be an elite puffer. Uh, so it was a little bit of a letdown, you know, when I had my thousandth post, and I was just an elite poster. It's like, oh, okay. Um, but the forum, I just lucked into it. I had gotten down... I never get below one fish tank because I've got this really big fish tank in the living room. So even in my inactive phase, I've got one big fish tank. So until June of this year, I had one tank. I had aquariums sitting out in the driveway that I was giving away to neighbors. And then it it actually was pygmy sunfish. I thought, you know, I could put some pygmy sunfish in one of these (laughs) 10-gallon tanks. It always comes back to the pygmy sunfish. Yeah, and I brought those in, and that was June, and now here in November, I'm up to 14 tanks. I've got um, five 40s, a couple of 50s, a couple of 75s, so it blew back up real quickly. But on the first week of July, I thought, you know, I need a couple of sponge filters to get these things going, and aquarium co-op came up and I realized also in that same search there was a YouTube channel and this Corey guy was really just fun to listen to. I just put it on the background and just go about my work and he said you should be a member and it was like it was only five bucks so I became a member like on July 10th and on July 14th he sent out in of 2020 wow okay so I'm just days before, on on July 14th, he sent out an email, I think to everybody who was a member of the YouTube site, saying, hey, I've put up a forum. So I joined the forum that day, and it was just a roller coaster ride. There were great people. Bill Smith, he would do these intense projects. He invented the Pex pillar, you know, that puts... <laughs> that thing is sweet, yep, yep. Yeah, it, it's so well documented. And it became... It was an addiction. I mean, you can tell. <laughs> you don't get as many posts as I have if you're not, like, addicted to it. And then when somebody would like your post, it was like a shot of dopamine. It's like, oh, I have to do this again. That's awesome. So, and I think what I can distill the forum down to is this. I learned something new every day on the forum. Yeah. So I come back every day because I know I'm going to learn something I didn't start the day knowing. Well, it just it it gives you a whole different level of interacting that social media and watching people put videos up on YouTube that, you know, just just yesterday there was a um I really like our, you know, introduce yourself section and there's a gal, I think she's in Oregon. Let's give her maybe she listens to the podcast, maybe not. Uh probably not statistically, I would say. Uh where is she? So, here's her post. It's by Nat, N A T from Oregon. Um, and the title is hello from Oregon fish and toddler mom. And so she, you know, 
puts up a couple yeah. paragraphs of kind of about herself and then she starts sharing all of her pictures just around the house and you know they're all planted they're all kind of scaped differently um but not like a pretentious like high-end aquascaping but just like cool awesome planted tanks with fish in it and you know she also has a similar story of like her kids just love looking at the fish too and my kids love looking at the fish too and she's had some success with some breeding going on and whether it's purposeful or accidental like it's super cool and like you know you just don't get this kind of stuff in this format you know if all you're consuming is just youtube and watching the same personalities over and over again um you know and from my experience like the other forums that were out there they're not you know they're not what they used to be um yeah and yeah i mean there's just something really cool about this forum and i hope that it continues to to just be a really good place where kind of everybody can come and just share and talk and and learn and grow together well it's it's average people who keep nice fish tanks and who keep average fish tanks and you're not afraid to show a picture of your tank with algae and dirty water or, or, or say, I just did this crazy thing. What do I do? Because you know everyone on the forum, the, the number one rule is be kind and be helpful. And that is almost always true. I, I think I've actually read every post, every made on the forum, and maybe twice since July 14th. Have you had somebody get a little snippy? Everybody's understanding. Everybody is kind and helpful. Well, it's just, it's just trolls need not apply. Like if you're a troll, kick exactly. rocks. Like just get out of here. Yeah. No, nobody wants your crap on this on this forum or in general. Like people, you know, go do something else. Do something productive. Yep. Or, or if you troll and you get banned, you know, reflect on it, realize that you probably shouldn't have done that, and make a new screen name, come back, and be a positive person. Yeah, I think there's only been two people banned ever um and they wanted it you could tell you could tell they, <laughs> they, they wanted to be banned <laughs> oh my goodness yeah we've got uh 2399 total members i feel like this is a pledgeathon we're like come on folks let's get that 2400th member of the uh of the forum we've got uh most online 203 people at one time we've got a new member joined one hour ago 4,122 total topics for uh, and 3,000 or 31,287 total posts. So, um, you know, I don't know forum statistics off the back of my hand to compare this to other forums, but that seems like a pretty good start to something that's only been around for a few months. And well, um, and it's continually growing. But shh, Randy, don't tell it. It's a wonderful little village. <laughs> you know, just, we, we got to keep it our secret. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Now nah, we got to spread the word, spread the word, get people on the forum. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with the, uh, with, you know, the, the kind of that village sentiment and wanting it to kind of stay, you know, you want to, you want to keep it how it is. And I think, I think we have the mechanism and the people in place and that kind of, uh, general attitude to as new people come aboard, like they see what the forum's about, and I don't think we'll we'll ever let it slide into something where it's divisive and you know allows trolls to do trolly things and whatnot. So I think it I think it'll stay a village. It's just going to be a bigger village. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful place. There's some really smart people. I know that you know I I can uh, roll out some of the scientific stuff, but it better be true because. Uh, Coronal mass ejection. Carl will check. <laughs> will check up on me and say, uh, "Did you mean parts per million, Daniel?" But he'll say that in a nice way. Uh, but there's also, you know, uh, 
Kenneth, one of my favorites, he started with plastic plants and a, a, and a light blue gravel. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And he was having trouble keeping his fish alive. And that was in July. And I saw a post from Kenneth the other day. And he's got a wonderful planted tank with nice aquascaping. Mm-hmm. And that's what the forum is about. You know, you come in at whatever level you are. People help you. And, and it's all okay. And we're all having a good time. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't really do this hobby alone. I mean, you you, you could, but you're going to be so much so much more successful if you actually share your experiences, share your hardships, um, share your successes, and then you know just learn. And actually, let's do this right now. I took a picture of my son's aquarium in his in his room. It's a little ten gallon. I'm going to post right now, Daniel. Let's go okay. to let's go to Randy's followed content. Hold on, I got to get the I got to get the teams thing out of the way. Manage followed content because the one thing I do need to figure out is how to uh, kind of set my alerts a little bit better. So I still need to. I sound like such an old person. Like I don't know how technology works. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine what I feel like. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? You're a master at this thing. You probably run laps around me. All right, yeah, here yeah. we go. Randy's fish room post where Randy puts all the stuff where he shows that he's a complete newbie at heart and in actuality Kyle here this is live folks this is riveting yep uh, I'm on your page of the 10 gallon oh not 210 gallon I had one of those your last post was you've got a picture of a tank crushed coral check <laughs> check a newbie is not a check yep <laughs> Do- New breeding project. Yeah, I mean, yep. you don't you don't say what it is, but oh, you know you know me, I'm secretive. So actually, those yeah. fish those fish landed today. Um, I there there's two different species. One of them came. The other one that we got shorted on. Oh, actually, in that picture, can you see the tank with the green water in the reflection? Oh, the reflection. That's the yes. It, so that tank is the 30 breeder that I recently set up with my uh, gold. No, no, no. This one's gold leertail molly. So this is the one where ah. if you if you go up, I believe I shared it where it's just this real nice, clean looking 30 breeder with uh, two easy planters, um, kind of yeah. off to like the thirds, uh, with I don't know like Windelov or, or or dwarf sag. It's that tank. But the light was so intense, and I feed it so heavy that it's just turned into this green water bloom, which I'm totally cool with. Well, and that's the thing. When people post, how do I get rid of my green water? It's like, no, no, no. Tell me exactly what you're doing because I (laughs) value the green water tank. No, totally. Totally. That's the key to raising baby fish. Well, the one – so my discus, like I wasn't trying to work with – the one pair that I have that are consistently laying eggs, um, granted half the time they eat them, half the time they'll eat the wigglers at like the the first day in, their tank bloomed with green water, and I didn't put a UV sterilizer in there because this order that we're getting with the Okie sunfish is supposed to have Daphnia, and so I'm like, no, I need this green water. I want to be able to see the discus breeding and, and, you know, maybe pull eggs or maybe pull fry when they get to a certain point. But, you know, I just let the tank go because I wanted that green water. Since then, that tank has – the green water has gone away. And now this molly tank has just blown up with green water. And so I'm like, come on, Daphnia, get here because I've got the green <laughs> water. And hopefully it's just – like my, my recipe right now is take a Fluval 3.0, put it on 100%, and feed that tank yep. he- heavy like crazy. 
Um, there you go. It's still on the auto water, water chain system. It's got the plants. It's got this filtration. So I think that's all good. Um, but yeah, hopefully the green water sticks around. And um, the only thing I'm, I'm, and maybe you can give me some, some advice on this one or, or your thoughts. Is the green water potentially impacting breeding? I wouldn't think so because when you see what it's like for wild discus, and are you asking about discus? No, no. This uh, this thirty breed this thirty breeder has the uh, leertail mollies in it. Uh, the mollies. Um, you know, when I've seen mollies in the wild out in Florida, it's generally been pretty clear. But maybe that's kind of a self fulfilling thing. I didn't see the mollies that were in the murky water. But remember when Joe, no, Rosario LaCourt would tell his stories about being down in Brazil. And he said, I'd stick my hand in black water. You couldn't see my own hand. Uh, but those fish were the most colorful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think it would impact breeding. I mean, fish well, don't don't live in pristine water most of the time. Well, and, that's, and that's the thing. But maybe these guys, though, these live bears, these mollies, maybe they are coming from a clearer water. And the fact that their form of reproduction is not egg scattering. Right. Maybe there's something to that because I haven't now granted, I haven't really swung a net around in there. I have pulled the initial fry that were born uh, in clear water conditions. They have since moved over. There's maybe one or two that I still need to get out of there, but I don't think I have seen any since. Yeah. And so that's well, where I'm, that's where I'm wondering, like, is the green water impacting these guys now uh, in their ability to chase down a female or to lock up with her or whatever it is for the live bear production? Well, it's only got to work once. Uh, <laughs> and then she's good for a while. Right, and right. there is a, I, I don't know if this story turned out to be true, but the story with the original Endlers uh, was that, uh, you know, John Endler found these off the edge of a dump in just murky, murky green water. And the theory was they were so colorful because that's what it took for the uh, females to see the males. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that that's at least a live bear green water story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, who knows if that's true, but, uh, you know, male live bears are so persistent. I mean, a male guppy will mate with a dead female guppy repeatedly. I, I just can't imagine anything standing in their way, much less something as simple as green water. No, I believe that they're definitely the males are the males are pretty crazy. All right, so here is my picture. Let's go. Somebody's gonna call me out that I need to put more water in this tank. <laughs> well, no, we're gonna be kind and helpful. <laughs> Boom! Submit reply. Here we go. All right, Daniel. Now you can see it, folks. That's a first. That's a podcasting first of actually posting yep, to a is. forum. Yeah, Randy's so fish room just had a bit of activity, <laughs> and there it is. And it's got uh, are those cardinal tetras or those neons? are those are cardinals. Yeah, the son, yeah. my son, was very insistent that he wanted some cardinal tetras in his tank. Well, good for him. Yeah, so I've got some coffee in the back on some driftwood, which you know, a couple, you know, this thing like grows two new leaves, loses a leaf or, or whatnot. But that in general, that coffee is doing well. I think that's Nana next to it. Um, yeah. and then off to the left is some newer windalob that I added in the corner. You've got SpongeBob's house kind of sitting there. SpongeBob himself is covered up a little bit with that center mass of Java moss. And yeah. then that dwarf of corn lily bulb is just loving life in there. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Which 
you know, to be fair, I hate it when the when the uh, lily pads get to the surface. Like I like it when it stays all bunched and under the mm-hmm. under the water level. Like to me, that's the best. And it's just I've just been too lazy to uh, actually trim it. And then in the very very far back, you can see the reflection on the side glass. But that is the one of the prototypes of our uh, aquarium co-op sponge filter. Um, it's a much smaller size of the nano that we were considering going with, but. Uh, yep. We felt that it was a little too short, and that's why the nano that we have is, you know, its current height. Uh, this one is about at least an inch or a full inch and a half shorter than that than the current uh, co-op nano sponge filter that we have. Well, you know, you, you have to be careful with those reflections because I, you know, I get up early in the morning. I'm not completely <laughs> dressed, and it's like, well, I'm going to take pictures of this tank, and I'm going to post it on the forum. And I go, oh, 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 I cannot post that picture I just took. And and it's not the fish tank, it's the reflection. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely like, yeah, social media posting. And actually the picture of the one above it of me showing the new breeding project tank, I'm actually crouched down super low holding the camera yeah. so you can't see me in the reflection because I wasn't like – my hair was just, you know, standing on end, looking absolutely ridiculous, you know, with my, I haven't had a haircut in like a year except for trimming the sides, but uh, that's why, because I wear a hat all the time now, which is why I'm wearing a hat as yep. you and I talk. Um, so you don't have to see my hair in all its glory, but that's, that's again, kind of getting off topic there. But yeah, no, it's funny that you can see the green water tank. Yeah. So, so that 30 breeder on the left in the picture, that's the, uh, that's the Molly tank. And um, I did post to Instagram the picture of one of the one of the adults in there, and they're just a hog, just this chunk of a molly. And then to the right of it, that is the dedicated thirty breeder for the um, super red long fins. So I've since uh-huh. I've I've since moved them from a thirty breeder on a different rack that they shared with a whole massive cherry shrimp. And my thought was that I wasn't seeing nearly as much. Um, spawning, you know, egg clutches like I was with normal super reds. And my thought was that maybe the sheer number of cherry shrimp are just irritating them. And so I've since moved them to their own dedicated tank because ideally uh, for me in the fish room, it was, you know, working with albino bristlenose. Okay, well, I've done that. And those are really, really common. Then I am breeding the, the super reds, normal fin, kind of in mass. Now that not that those are so much starting to get common, but now it's I want to shift it and really just crank out all the long fins um, and be able to supply those with the shop. Because at the end of the day, kind of what I want to do is supply these fish and then hopefully um, if I can do it consistently enough, we can actually just offer a better price in store than, yep. you know, what we would get if we're buying them from the wholesaler. Because one, the long fins are not nearly as common on the wholesalers list. Right. And two, when they are on there, they are expensive fish. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of one of my hopes and, you know, just kind of have that little mark on the co-op of, you know, oh, if they're long fins, you know, they're going to be from Randy and, you know, he's able to bring them in, you know, uh, pretty consistently for us and kind of have it as a staple in the store at a, at a good price. Well, I'd buy a fish if Randy bred it. Just uh, <laughs> that would just be cool. There was there was uh, a, there was a gentleman in the store and I, and I forgot to catch his name, but he was, uh, you know, I, I was going in the store and we're only letting so many people in at a time and I needed to drop off fish. And I told him, like, oh, you know, I'm an, I'm an employee here as I kind of cut the line to take my bucket in. He's like, oh, I know who you are. And, you know, he comes later on in the store. He's like, oh, yeah, and I've got your super reds I bought last year and they're actually breeding in my tank. And I'm like that to me, like that makes it all worth it. Like, you know, uh, there there's that's just like one massive part of the experience for me is, you know, breeding the fish, but then also knowing that it's going somewhere to a home that somebody's like legitimately going to have fun and, and be successful with. Like, that's just so much icing on the cake right there for me. 
Yeah, that's when you and I, for just a moment, get to be Rosario LaCourt, where it's like <laughs> I actually did something that was made the hobby a little better. Yeah. Did he talk about, in my first interview with him, I don't know if you remember or not, I'm trying to remember, but it's in his book where that one company wanted to do like a have-your-own-aquarium-at-home kit, and part of it oh, was it, actually having so, the killifish eggs. So I vaguely remember this from the 60s, or maybe I just read it, but it was instant fish, yep. and it was kind of like sea monkeys, yep. except I think what they sent you was killifish eggs. And, and it was him. You, and it was yeah, him. It was him. In, I his, mean, I in his house fish room. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah. Um, but you can see why that was kind of, you know, it's like a Chia pet, just a flash in the pan sort of thing. Uh, but uh, it paid for his fish room. Yeah. I mean, that's just that that success level that he's had is just phenomenal. Just absolutely phenomenal. All right, Daniel. Well, speaking of a success, I think this episode, my friend, is is I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think certainly a live food episode and then just coming back and talking about the rest of your experience. I mean, we only hit the end of the 70s, right? Um, That's right. <laughs> we still have a couple more decades to go. Well, cool. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much.